This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Bear. Yeah, Bear. Bear, they make aspirin that helps save lives during a heart attack, protects the heart of a family. But they do more than that. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bear is advancing science for a better life. At Bear, this is why we science. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When Don Green was a springboard diver in high school and college, his performances were erratic. Sometimes they'd be amazing, and sometimes embarrassing. None of his coaches could explain why that happened to him, so Don set out to find the answers himself. After serving as an Army Ranger in Green Beret and getting his PhD in sports psychology, Don has spent decades coaching Olympic divers, professional athletes, race car drivers, opera singers, classical musicians, and Wall Street traders, and how not to choke under pressure. He shares the principles he uses as a stretch coach and fight your fear and win, seven skills performing your best under pressure. Today we talk about those skills, beginning with why people choke in the first place and what's going on in your mind when that happens. We then talk about the fundamentals of managing performance anxiety and staying in right brain flow, including making adrenaline work for instead of against you, getting your mind centered, ignoring distraction, and becoming mentally tough. We also discuss how to thwart negative self-talk through a practice Don calls thought monitoring and his five-step strategy for recovering when you do make a mistake. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is don't choke. All right, Don Green, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So you spent decades coaching elite performers. We're talking golfers, tennis players, Olympic divers, race car drivers, opera singers, Juilliard musicians, and even financial investors and in how to master their, their mental game. What's the reason these performers initially come to you for help? The issue is they want to do better under pressure. Because, because all of them can do it well in a practice room. All of the divers can do well, you know, in relaxed circumstances. All the opera singers can nail it in lessons. That's not the issue. That's not what they get paid for. They all have in common the fact that they tend, if, if they're not trained in this or experienced in this, they tend not to do as well under pressure as they do in relaxed circumstances. And what I teach them to do is what Olympic athletes learn to do is not just do it as well as you do in a practice room in relaxed circumstances, but learn how to use the adrenaline to perform better under pressure than you do in relaxed circumstances. That's what Olympic athletes are trained to do by sports ecologists for many years. If you look at Olympic competition, Olympic athletes compete all the time, continually. National championships, Pan Am games, university games, Maccabea games, it's continual, nationals, all the time. And they have an opportunity to set records, world records, in any of these sanctioned events. But only once every four years do not only the Olympic records drop, but the world records drop in events that can be measured, like like the shot put, like the long jump, like swimming events. They drop dramatically because the athletes have learned how to use the adrenaline. And that's what sports psychologists teach. And that's basically what I do teach Two musicians and opera singers. I mean, opera is an athletic event. Athletic event. You need a lot of power to to create that that incredible sound without microphones. That's like the shot put. And instead of trying to suppress that energy or just relax or take beta blockers or alcohol, what I teach 
musicians how to do is use that energy and power to blow audition panels away. You don't want to just do it the way the other 100 candidates are doing it. you got to stand out if you want to win. And that's the performance approach versus just relax. So whenever the stakes are high, then as you said, the adrenaline increases. What does that adrenaline surge do to a performer? <laughs> well, it, it has dramatic effects if you don't know how to use it. It comes across in three different areas. The symptoms physically are racing heart rate, change in breathing, increased perspiration, wanting to go to the bathroom a lot, increased muscle tension, butterflies in the stomach, shakiness, tremors. Those are just the physical ones. Mentally, there's increased self-consciousness. There's increased negative thinking, increased doubt, tend to think the worst, imagine the worst, doomsday thinking, fearing the worst, a lot of critical thinking, blaming, opinions, judgments. So it puts the mind into overdrive, which, which affects performance. And the last is, is the emotional, because pure, people go into a fear response. They, they brace for the danger. Their muscles tighten, and the musicians tend to play defensively because of this versus playing out or singing out. Uh, because of the adrenaline, they don't know how to use it. I think everyone listening has probably experienced that self-consciousness that happens when you feel that adrenaline, and it causes you to overthink what you're doing, and then you end up just screwing up whatever you're doing, even though you're thinking really hard about it. Well, the thinking hard is what causes screwing up. Yeah, that's the choking part. Don't choke, don't choke. Yeah, sports psychologists have identified in detail the choking mechanism It's well well-documented. Most musicians are not that familiar with it. Most people are not that familiar with it because they don't want to think about choking because it's, it's like thinking about shanking in golf. You don't want to think about it. But it, but it does happen. But here's the mechanism. The, there's a difference between panicking and choking. Panicking happens to people that are not trained that all of a sudden they're in disastrous situations for not trained. They don't want to do, don't know how to handle it. They're not experienced. So they do stupid things, you know, like people know. Yeah. If you watch your house burning down, people go in and, you know, get the stuffed animals, not the financial records because they're not trained to use the adrenaline or what to think well under when the adrenaline hits, but that's panicking. But experienced people can choke. And choke is a very different mechanism. This is people are expected to do well. And because they're trained, they went to the right schools, they have the proper training. So they're expected to handle this pressure situation. So they're in a pressure situation and then they can make a minor mistake or a lapse in focus or whatever. And... And it's not good. And they realize that, you know, people are watching them or listening to them because they're expected to be good. And it, it shifts them from the right brain where they're, you know, in flow, where they're playing the music or, or an athlete in flow in a competition with mental quiet and right brain, feeling the movements, seeing them correctly, possibly hearing the right sounds. They shift from that performance right brain state to the left brain which is where we think in words and numbers and analysis and criticism and blaming. 
And because the spotlight's on this person, because they're expected to be good and everybody's listening, they get super self-conscious and shift from right brain to left brain, and not just left brain, but prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is the most advanced form of human thinking. It's, it's responsible for what's called executive functioning. This is high-speed, rapid left brain thinking. This is very helpful in a board meeting if you're presenting to the investors and you scrambling, ask a question you're not prepared for or challenge you, and all of a sudden your brain goes out into left brain executive functioning and thing called liquid intelligence. This is very, very rapid left brain thinking analysis to try to plan your way out of this dilemma. <laughs> and it's very useful in a board meeting, but it's not useful in the middle of a concerto or a athletic performance or anything where you need to be in right brain flow. And, and it causes people to go from right brain flow to left brain staccato robotic movements because you go from implicit memory of knowing how to do it and trust it without the left brain interference to left brain explicit memory where you have to talk yourself way through it the way you learned it when you were 12 years old or 14 years old and it comes out as staccato and robotic like a stick figure biomechanical stick figure going through a golf swing with 100 different positions and and it doesn't work and it will produce a bad shot or a mistake, a bad note in music. And when the athlete or musician hears that, it drives them further into left brain prefrontal cortex. And that's what causes a meltdown or choking. So I think I've heard uh, the right brain sort of activity memory. Isn't that proce- is that procedural memory where it's like, riding a bike like your your body just implicitly knows what to do that's exact that's exactly it but but your body knows what to do but this is when the left brain prefrontal cortex overrides that and that's what causes the problem it, it overrides that that implicit system that procedural memory and also in your book, you noted that you also worked with Wall Street brokers who you think are very analytical right? They're using that left brain. What issues do they have with the high pressure? Like what is their, is it, it's not the procedural stuff I would imagine because it's very analytical. What is, what's causing their block? Well, that's the problem. I, I don't see it as block. I think it's their procedure. Yes, it's very left brain and they need to be left brain. They need to analyze, weigh the options, pros and cons, but to me, it, it shouldn't stop there because that's only using half their brain. And that, to me, sets up mistakes. What, what works, and this works for experienced traders, not new traders or amateur day traders. This is for professionals, like professional musicians or ath- professional athletes. This is not for beginners. You need the explicit memory. You need to learn it in left brain. Athletes... Musicians need to learn it in left brain explicit. And after years and 10,000 hours, shift to right brain and trust it that it will work procedurally implicitly. So you need to put in the hours for this system to work. But after you have, you have developed an incredible power 
beyond the left brain with your right brain, namely intuition. So the idea is that you start in left brain, crunch the numbers, pros and cons, and switch to right brain then. Check in with your gut. How's it feel? Feel right or, right or wrong? Approach or avoidance? Yes or no? It's not a, it doesn't take long. It shouldn't take long because if it starts thinking, then you're back to left brain. But it's an up or down. It's, it's in your gut, not in your head, certainly not in your left brain. That's step two. And then step three is you go back to left brain and make sure it's, it's you can live with this. <laughs> you know, <that's laughs> not, that, that if you go this way, you, you know, it's really off the charts and it doesn't work, you could lose your job. <laughs> right. right. Well, well, I think that's a good point you brought up. This stuff that you, the, the things that you do, the tactics, some of the tactics we'll talk about today, this is for people who are hyper, like they, they've, they've put in the hours, they have the experience. This probably is not going to work for, say, someone who has to give a presentation It's the first public speech they've ever given. Might not work. Not, not going to work. Not gonna so you're, work. you're talking about people, maybe someone who, uh, who has maybe just a corporate job where they're, they're a fantastic public presenter, but then for some reason they just hit this, like they go through this, they, they choke, they start choking. Your job is to help them figure out like well, dude, what's well, going it, on there. They're not necessarily a fa- fantastic presenter. If they're a fantastic <laughs> presenter, <laughs> well, they, they were, don't they were, and now they're not. Yeah, well, that, that's an easy one. If they were, it's just to take them back to what they were doing when they were doing it well. Yeah. No, I think that's, I've, I've, I forgot who it was. There was a baseball player who was this fantastic hitter. And then he hit, had this, hit this terrible slump and he was like about to go back to the minor leagues. And what they ended up doing is they just said, quit, quit thinking about it. They just said, just have fun. And then I think one game he had like three home runs or something like that. It was something crazy. But, well, that's, that's the problem. Coaches in baseball are trained in baseball, not necessarily in how to focus or quiet the mind. So what they're telling the athlete to do is focus, but they're not telling the athlete how to do it or specifically how to quiet the mind. That's what sports psychology teaches. But, but it's as simple as switching from the left brain instructions on how to hit the ball to right brain quieting the mind so you can fully see the trajectory of the ball. Because every time you switch to left brain to check the position of your, of your right elbow or, this, or your balance, you're going to be out of right brain and you're not going to see the ball. And for every time you don't see the ball for that amount of trajectory, you're not seeing the ball and the ball is going to jump. And the more it jumps, the less you see it and the less you can hit it. Where when I work with professional hitters, I teach them to quiet the mind so they can see the full trajectory of the ball in their right brain. And then it seems to slow down because they're so used to bouncing between left and right brain and missing parts of the trajectory that when they see the whole trajectory, it slows down and they hit it better. But but professional baseball coaches don't necessarily know how to do that. But but Yogi Berra, one of my favorite philosophers, said <laughs> you can't hit the ball and think at the same time. No, it's true. That's it. But but most people don't know how to stop thinking. They their left brain is a machine that's that's continually running 24-7 other than when they're in REM a deep sleep. 
and they don't have either the stop switch or the slow switch to slow it down somewhat or to shift into right brain. And that's what sports psychology teaches. But, you know, cliches, well, well, just just focus or, or, or just just focus or just relax is nice, but it, it doesn't work. Well, and you published a book um, called Fight Your Fear and Win, and you talk about seven skills you teach your clients to help them with the stuff we've been talking about. So we can talk about a few of these skills in detail, but over, like, can you give us a broad view? Like, what are these seven skills that you found help people perform um, when the pressure's on? Yeah, what I've found to work across the board is number one is learn how to control this energy the adrenaline that goes with high pressure situations and make it work for you. That's one of the key things, because if that overrides the performance or, or affects the performance, it will affect it. If people misinterpret the, the signals, like they think their their heart racing means they're not going to do well, or they get too self-conscious. If, if the energy is out of control, they're just not going to do well. So one of the main things I do is I have a strategy called centering, which is a very complicated strategy, seven steps from the martial art of Aikido and Western sports psychology to teach athletes and, and musicians how to, how to quiet the mind, how to shift to right brain, how to control their energy, how to control their breathing, how to intensify their focus. At first, it takes about a minute and a half and seven steps and after about a week or two of practicing going from basic to intermediate advanced, they can get centered in less than 10 seconds before they step in a batter's box to quiet their mind, before they start their concerto, or before they make a trade, a really important trade. So they're using both parts of their brain, not just the left, to use whole brain functioning. That's one of the first things I work on is centering so they can learn how to control the energy and learn how to start focusing on the pressure in right brain versus left brain. The next one has to do with uh, controlling both the left brain and right brain. In other words, channeling the negative self-talk more into positive, going from negative critical to more positive supportive, from negative to positive and ultimately to mental quiet that batters don't need a lesson on how to hit the ball. Traders don't need instruction on the market. They need to quiet that and, again, shift to right brain to either see the baseball or trust their intuition on this trade. That's another thing. The next is mental rehearsal, that, that they're able to imagine it going well, whether it's imagine them hitting this batter hitting this pitcher or, or playing the concerto well. Uh, I've found that, that not all elite athletes, elite musicians, can really imagine themselves performing flawlessly. If you ask them to sit down and imagine, you know, the toughest concerto that they play, they might wind up hearing mistakes in their mind. And mental rehearsal is, is a skill, a learned skill, just like any other skill, where people get the correct information and they practice it for a while and they get better at it so that they can fully vividly imagine their performance going flawlessly under pressure. And if they can't do that, they have reason to doubt how well they're going to do under pressure. The next has to do with focus 
of getting them past distractions and into the zone. And distractions come from either outside, like things moving or sounds, or worrying about people and what they're thinking about you and your performance, or internal distractions besides that, such as left brain distractions like instructions, commentary, blaming, criticism, judgments, while they're trying to perform in right brain. And and the last I I work on resilience. Uh, None of the performers or athletes I work with, it's not easy. It's very challenging at all those levels. And the question is, can can they be mentally tough under challenging situations when things are going against them? I have a background in psychology, but I have a background in the military. I went to West Point, which is a four-year instruction in how to compete under terrible situations, conditions, an airborne ranger. I was the first in my West Point class to join the Green Berets, Fifth Special Forces. I, I add some of that to my training with people, not boot camp, but to, to get them tougher, to prepare them for the competition. Because it's not easy and things happen. Things happen in auditions, things happen in competition. One of our Olympic divers who won a silver medal in 84 on 10 meter platform came in second to a Chinese lady. And the third, third girl was Chinese as well. So Michelle Mitchell got a silver medal in 84, but she wasn't happy about it. She wanted a gold medal. So two years later, they had the world championship in China. And Michelle went there with the intention to win. And she started the competition very well. In China, it's a very popular event. Like 10,000 people come to diving events. Uh, in the U.S., about 100 people come. <laughs> but but uh, Michelle is diving very well. There's eight dives in women's competition, 10-meter platform, 33 feet. Very challenging event. Two people have killed themselves hitting the platform. Very dangerous. Michelle got off to a very good start, hit her first four dives. After the fifth dive, she was winning the competition. She was beating the two Chinese competitors. They have big leaderboards in China showing dive by dive where the divers were standing. She was, after the fifth round, she was leading the competition. She hit a sixth dive and a seventh dive. She was leading by 15 points going to the last dive. Her last dive was an inward three and a half. It's where you turn around backwards on the platform and then spin towards the platform three and a half times. She was one of the only two women in the world doing it. And it was her last dive. And she went out to the end of the platform and turned around and and started setting up, putting her toes on the end. And she started hearing a noise. And she thought somebody dropped a teacup and then two teacups. And then it started more and she realized people were stomping their feet. And it got louder and louder. It was really dangerous. The rules would allow her to step back and ask the rules official to 
to quiet the crowd so she could do the dive. We had prepared for this. Michelle and I had trained for years for this. In practice, we did distraction training. We would drop things on the pool deck. We would play crowd noise. We'd put on AM talk stations. The divers did not like it at first. They got used to it. Michelle did not ask to start again. She went through her routine. She said some expletives about the Chinese people. And she nailed the dive for nine and a half. She got 110. She won the world championship. The next morning, she got a public apology in the official Chinese newspaper apologizing for the behavior of their citizens. That's mental toughness. When I was at Juilliard, the final exam was adversity training. I prepared them for weeks ahead of time with mental toughness. This was their final exam. I told them things would happen. One of the time they came in, the first thing they did after they got set up, we had a four by eight plywood plank we dropped in front of them, made a huge noise. I had an AM radio station playing. I had one of my other musicians play whatever that musician was playing, but slightly out of tune and off tempo. I had a TV monitor in front of them and a camera on them. If they looked up, they saw themselves. We did 22 things to them. They all nailed it. All got an A. It happened that NPR, National Public Radio, had heard about my class. They were doing a series on the most popular courses in university, and it came to Juilliard, and they picked my class. It just so happened I was doing this on that day. So we had the extra pressure. We had professional radio there listening or, or taping them and the whole thing. And it was all things considered, and it's, you can still hear it, of all the things we did to the students. It was not abusive. It was trained them for exactly what happened to Michelle Mitchell in China because things happen in auditions. Audition panel members talk to each other, cell phone rings, stagehands knock things over, and you can complain about it or you can just make the best of it. And that's what my military training taught me to do. Regardless of the situation, you make the best of it. And that's what I've tried to teach performers, that you can't expect it to, to go perfectly. It's not going to. And get used to it. From my Juilliard students that had problems playing with distractions, external distractions, People making noise while they were playing. Their homework assignment for the next week was take their instrument and go on the subway platform and play their concerto. If they came out, things didn't bother them anymore. That's that's mental toughness. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. All right, if you're looking for a Christmas gift for the dudes in your life, maybe you got a brother, dad, you're trying to figure out what to get them, consider a pair of Saks underwear. The Saks underwear has changed the game in underwear. It all starts with their ballpark pouch. It's these internal mesh panels that keeps everything in place down there. It's underwear designed with our anatomy in mind. Plus, every pair of Saks underwear is made with the highest quality materials, including super soft and moisture-wicking fabric and non-chafing flat-out seams. My go-to pair of Saks underwear is the Kinetic Boxer Brief. It's got a compression short feel to it, which I like when I'm doing those barbells squats and of course the ballpark pouch super comfortable what's great about is i've gotten i've gotten letters from people saying how sax underwear has been a game changer for them like they've said hey i heard about sax on the podcast bought a pair it's been fantastic so 
If you'd like to try this out, I got a great deal for you. You can save 10% and get free shipping on a pair of sacks just by going to my special URL, saxunderwear.com slash AOM. That's S-A-X-X underwear.com slash AOM. You're gonna get 10% off and free shipping on a pair of sacks underwear. While you're there, check out the Kinetic Boxer Brief one more time, saxunderwear.com slash AOM, 10% off and free shipping. Also by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you turn your intentions into actions. Check it out. Go to strenuouslife.co. You'll find out all about the program. You'll see what you get, what's involved with it. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for our email waiting list so that you can be one of the first to know when our enrollment opens up this January. Strenuouslife.co. Sign up. Hope to see you on the program in January. Also by Omigo. So let's talk about how we're taking care of business in the bathroom because things really haven't changed much since our great, great, great grandparents have been tearing out sheets from Sears catalogs. It's the 21st century. It's time to upgrade and you can do that with the Omigo toilet bidet seat. It's a bidet seat. You install yourself. It takes about 20 minutes. No plumber needed. Once you install it, the experience is fantastic. You can control the entire experience by adjusting the water temperature, position, pressure, width, and movement. It's got a fan. It's got a deodorizer. There's a light in this thing. So if you got to go to the bathroom at night, you know where you're aiming. My kids love it. They call it the robot toilet seat. And that's what it is. And this makes a great Christmas present because when someone opens it up, they're going to say, you got me a toilet seat? You're going to say, no, it's a robot toilet seat. So if you'd like to get 10% off your Omigo toilet seat, go to myomigo.com slash manliness. That's myomigo.com, Omigo with an O, myomigo.com slash manliness. You get 10% off the toilet seat bidet of your dreams. One more time, myomigo.com slash manliness. And now back to the show. So that's a technique right there that you just talk. If you want to build mental toughness, you have to practice it. You have to create the circumstances. This reminds me of Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach. Uh, whenever there's, like it gets cold in Boston about this time and sometimes it snows. And sometimes the player's like, hey, we're going to practice indoors. He's like, no, we're going to practice outdoors. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly it. The golf coach at the Oklahoma State, which wins a lot of national championships, where there's a lot of win in Oklahoma, uh, he says, you know, if, if if it's a calm day, you can stay at the range. But if the wind starts howling, if it starts raining, we're going out to play. That's it. In, in sports psychology, it's called overcompensation. Whatever the problem is, you don't ignore it. hope it goes away, but you exaggerate it. And then under safe conditions, you learn how to deal with it. That's mental toughness training. And I think for a lot of athletes or coaches who aren't familiar with this sort of thing, they would think, well, if you need to improve your hitting, save to baseball, a hitting coach, well, just go to the batting cages and get those, you know, medium fast pitches right down the middle all the time. That's probably not going to help. You actually need to get something more real world or exaggerate the type of pitches. No, you that, get. That's, a false, that's a false sense of security. That does no good at all. What you want to do is subject yourself to the most extreme. Instead of hitting, you know, average speed pitches, you know, get a pitcher, a pitcher just really hurling them at you or a lot of different change-ups. When I worked with the Texas Rangers in spring training, I saw that all of the hitters can hit the fast straight balls. All of them, just throw me another one. Let me hit this out of the park. But they get very few of those. And then in the competition, they have to figure out how to hit everything but a, but a fastball, which again turns on executive functioning and overthinking. So to me, it's, it's getting used to the extremes. Again, every kind of wild pitch you can imagine coming at you, that you get used to that. With, with musicians, it's the same thing. I, I wrote an article for a musician's union paper a couple months ago that musicians, uh, auditions are like hitting curveballs. 
and I, I wrote that, you know, there's sliders, there's sinkers, there's change of pace. And that's how it is in an audition. A number of my people went for big auditions, like at the Met and New York Philharmonic. And they were really well prepared, ready to win. They got there. They checked in. The person said, OK, you have two hours to warm up. So they go into a green room, put their instrument down, and five minutes later, the guy says, oh, we're running way ahead. You're up next. And for an instrument like a violin, it takes maybe an hour or two hours to really get in the groove practicing to, to warm up. And that's the curveball. Or they put them in a room and they say, you'll be up in 20 minutes. So the person rushes, goes through it. And they say, oh, you know, we're going to have lunch. And then they're running behind lunch. person who got there checked in at 10 o'clock at the New York Philharmonic at 4 o'clock is finally called in. And their energy went up and then it dropped down. And that's what they got to get used to and prepared for, not it going according to plan. In an audition, it really does. And in sports, it's chaos. Change happens. It's inevitable. It's It's not... Resisting that, it's it's getting used to it and learning how to deal with it. I want to go back to the skill of managing energy because you said something interesting that caught my attention was that oftentimes when people feel that adrenaline, they think, oh no, something's wrong. But you said that you actually have to, you said you have to teach your clients that no, that's actually, nothing's wrong. That's normal. But you have to channel that energy to for productive aims. So it sounds like you're refra- you're reframing like that stress response. Well, that's exactly it. It's, it's reframing. It's a question of interpretation. Because if you're in a situation where the adrenaline hits, regardless of what it is, whether it's a safe situation or unsafe situation, once it hits, it's going to start this whole cascade of symptoms that I talked about before with the because of the adrenaline, with the racing heart, perspiring and all of that. So at that point, you can interpret it correctly or wrong. If it's a real danger, if it's there, somebody standing there with pointing, pointing a gun at you, you won't be thinking about it. You'll be using it, and rightfully so, to run real fast, fight, fight, or stand there and battle a guy. However, that's a real threat. But what we're talking about is an imagined or not real threats. If somebody points a plastic gun at you and you think it's a real gun, the adrenaline's going to hit. But it doesn't need to even be danger. It can be going into a business meeting unprepared and an angry boss who could who could fire you, and that's a threat, and the adrenaline hits. Or for musicians, that is just an angry conductor not pleased with you playing and reprimanding you will send the adrenaline in. And at this point, the heart's going to race and you can say, oh my God, I'm, you know, this is dangerous. Oh my God, this is going to be terrible or whatever. My heart is racing. That's danger. Or you can rationally understand it as, no, it's not real danger. I got to work on my presentation or work on a concerto, but it's not real danger and interpret it correctly. Namely, okay. And that switches it because it's a very quick reaction from perception to interpretation to action. 
it happens very fast. In other words, the perception is a threat. The interpretation is real danger or not real danger. The action is run for your life or take a breath and deal with the situation. Because the symptoms are going to be there. The racing heart is going to be there. If the adrenaline hits, it's how you interpret it as either, oh, my God, no, or it's okay. Because if, if you've ever been stopped for a speeding ticket, which I have a few times, <laughs> <laughs> after the cop writes the ticket and chews you out, and he goes back to his car and he's finishing the paperwork, there's no more danger. In fact, you're in a very safe place. There's a police officer sitting behind you. Nobody's going to rob you or steer your car. But your heart is still pounding. No danger, heart's still pounding. Now you can interpret and say calm down, but the only time people say calm down is when they're freaking out. So it's to realize that this is a normal instinctual reaction to perceived threat and take action. And one of the actions I ask people to do is relax their muscles because people tighten up when they, when they go into fight, fight, when they feel a perceived threat. So if a batter steps, steps into the batting box with tight shoulders, it's, his muscles are not going to work well. He's going to be behind the pitch. He, it's going to slow down his muscle movement. Same thing with the golf swing. If a golf swing is tight, the ball is going to be blocked right. In performing arts, if the muscles are tight or the support is tight, opera singers are not going to sing with that power. Musicians are not going to play out. The trombonist is not going to play out because of the tight muscles. So it's the correct interpretation and the correct action after the interpretation. That's a key. So an, another skill you mentioned was this uh, self-talk. Yeah. And I think everyone, even if you're not a high performer, you've all, we've all experienced like when you mess up, you're, like, you're, you're such an idiot. You start talking to yourself like, why do you do something so stupid? You're terrible. Like, How do you coach your clients, your athletes, your musicians on... Because that's, that's a hard thing. I can imagine it's a hard habit to break. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not. Okay. It, okay. It, the, so like there's hope for habits, me. Having correct information, having a plan, and then sticking with the plan. This is very straightforward. Well, okay. That's good to know. There's hope for me then. So, uh, <laughs> well, not necessarily you, but... Oh, well. no. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. So here it is. And it, it's it's a relatively straightforward exercise, but people avoid this one. It's called thought monitoring. Okay? Here's how it works. Do you have anybody you know that that is that you teach or you mentor or looks up to you? Yes, my son. Okay. Yeah. Oh, this is straightforward. What's his name? His name's Gus. Gus. How old is he? He's nine. Okay, this is very easy. You can start him on the right track with this and yourself. All you have to do is write down during the course of your day or afterwards in reflection everything that you say to yourself that you wouldn't say to him. Okay, that's, yeah. <laughs> and then switch it over. That's column A and column B, the transformation of what you would say to him or nothing at all. No, that makes sense. It's super easy. Because like, yeah, if someone else is going through a hard time, if I was coaching him or providing, I would be supportive and I'd get affirmation. I wouldn't say you're an idiot. So why do you reserve that treatment for yourself? I have no clue. Some well, most for- people have no clue, but they continue doing it. But this is the exercise. I call this the Juilliard syndrome. When I was at Juilliard, 
uh, one of the exercises I would have them do, all in the same room in rehearsal, and take out their instrument and play the most challenging thing they could play in the midst of all the chaos, people playing different instruments, different pieces. I'd let them go on a couple of minutes, and I'd say, okay, write down all the things that you'd say to yourself when you're doing that. And they'd write it out. And, you know, for these beautiful, young, bright students who play beautiful music, it, when I read them aloud, it sounded like sailors <laughs> cursing. <laughs> and it was amazing. And they started laughing. We all started laughing. Then I had a, I made three copies of each. Then I would have one of them sit, surrounded by three people, reading what they were saying to themselves. Like, you idiot, can't you play? You sound like crap. And everybody started laughing. I said, that's what you're doing to yourself. That's how you get to Juilliard, not by being sloppy and ignoring it. But after you reach a certain level of competence, put the stick away and take out the carrot. Positive reinforcement works much better than negative reinforcement. We use it everybody else, but not ourselves. And this is the major shift I had these students do that, you know, if you want to live a happy life, just stop with the nonsense of criticism and, and learn how to be positive reinforcing with yourself like you do everybody else. That's it. It's pretty straightforward. And after about a week or two of writing it out, the list gets shorter and shorter and you're just more positive reinforcing with yourself or mentally quiet. You don't need all of that. You don't need that noise. And this is related to another skill of just handling setbacks. So, you know, first thing you can do, we talked about in depth, is planning for those setbacks, training for them. But they're going to occur anyways. So you got to bounce back. And part of that is talking in a, in a positive way towards yourself. But besides that, do you, do you give your clients any other systems to follow to whenever they have a, a, a mistake or a failure or a setback, they can bounce back immediately? Sure, sure. Uh, not at first immediately, but that's the goal because mistakes are inevitable. There is no perfectionism in elite, in elite sports or music. It, it, you have striving for excellence, which, which I preach, but not perfectionism. That's a, a nasty thing to impose. But not anticipating or, or predicting that mistakes will happen, but they do happen. So... I have people do a five-step recovery strategy. And the first step is acceptance, that the mistake happened. In spite of all the training, preparation, mistakes happen. And the opposite of that is denial. And for musicians, denial sounds like, I can't believe I missed that note. I've never missed that note. It's, it's neat. I never miss it. Well, you missed the notes. <laughs> so the first step is accepted immediately. You can work on it later, correct, analyze what's the mistake, but it's, it's immediate acceptance. Number two is when, when people make mistakes, they tend to cringe. Their muscles tend to tighten. They brace for impact. They, they're fearing the worst and, and they brace and the muscles tighten, especially if they're under pressure. They're already probably tight. In fact, the tightness may have caused mistakes in the first place. So the next thing I ask people to do is to, to imagine where they tend to tighten up, whether it's their jaw, their shoulders, their hands, it doesn't matter, but to immediately go to those areas and drop the tension. The next is, is to bring their mind back into the present because you can only focus in the present moment. And with a mistake, they tend to get stuck in the past of the mistake, what caused the mistake, how do I fix the mistake? Well, they're just compounding the mistake because they're now no longer in the present, 
and you make mistakes if you're not in the present. The next is a is a process cue if they need it. This is a process cue. This is a way to get the train back on the track because it's not going well. This is not the time to have a sophisticated analysis and correction. This is a time to be very simple with a fundamental basic thing that will cue your right brain with one word back into right brain. And these are simple words like support for opera singers or flow for athletes, trust, let it go, these things to get you back. With musicians, it's a little bit easier because the note is moving. Get back on the moving train. Get back on the moving note. It's moving. Get back out of the past into the present. With some sports like golf where the ball is just sitting there, that can be a little bit trickier. That's when you need again to get into flow. Uh, And the last is, the fifth step is for the rest of it, or initially the, the next parts of it, don't try to make up with it with an incredible, spectacular performance or the best performance of your life. Or this time, now I'm going to hit a home run. No, this is the time to get back to solid playing. Just in baseball, just make solid contact with the ball. Musicians, just play in tune, please, in tempo. Uh, just, just get back to solid before you try anything extra special to make up for the mistake. Because if you do, it will just cause another mistake. So that's the five-step strategy I teach to not preclude inevitable mistakes, but even in practice room and batting practice, when it happens, you know, practice is strategy. So one mistake is an isolated event that is quickly in the past and now back in the present. And again, these are skills you have to practice. It's not like it's going to, the first time you do it. Yeah, people... Mm, sometimes make a mistake thinking in sports psychology. Once you get the concept, okay, I got it. And that that's like saying, once you hit a, a long putt, okay, now it goes in. Okay, now I know how to putt. Well, Don, there's a lot more we could talk about. Where can people go to learn more, more about the book and your work and what you do? Uh, thanks. Uh, well, what I do is on a few websites. Uh, one is called Winning on Stage. And this is for performing artists. The one for athletes is winning in sports. And they're both similar because it's the same kind of ideas of you using the mind to learn how to perform your best under pressure. So on these both sites, I have different books, different courses, online courses where I teach like the centering. It's it's a self-study course with its own book, audio tapes, videotapes, a whole course where I teach people how to center. It, it's a very complicated strategy that can't. I can't just say, here are the seven steps, go for it. It's like learning anything else. You need, need, need to learn the correct information and then practice it. But in two weeks, people can learn how to really be centered and go into pressure situations, not just trying to squeak by in, or, or worse in left brain, but how to go in and learn how to use that energy and be centered and perform better because of the pressure. Well, fantastic. Well, Don Green, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Will. I, I, I certainly appreciate it. And start with monitoring your self-talk and treating yourself better with your self-talk. 
My guest today is Don Green. He is the author of the book, Fight Your Fear and Win. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, winningonstage.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash don't choke, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about things about managing stress. There's articles about that. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com. Use code MANLINESS to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.